This is The Guardian. Today, the fourth instalment of our Cost of the Crown miniseries. With the clock ticking, we scrabble to put the last pieces of the puzzle together about the extent of royal wealth before making our final calculations. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. For the past few months, me and my colleagues in the Guardian Investigations team have been crisscrossing the country in a quest to uncover as much as possible about the true extent of the royal family's wealth. Our job is to find stuff out. Like that is the that is why we're the investigations team. Why are we doing this? Because basically no one else will. There's no way the right wing press will do it. We've heard how the Windsors have benefited from a recent settlement with the government that sees them receive tens of millions of pounds each year in taxpayer funding. One key detail to the way the Sovereign Grant was structured that has made it an unbelievably generous deal, which often gets referred to as the golden ratchet. Basically, the gist of it is the sum of money they get given can only ever increase. We've heard how much they've made from the vast hereditary estates known as the duchies. So it's 1.2 billion collectively. I think it is, yes. That's a rather large figure. (laughs) That is more than I thought it would be. How they've blurred the lines between public and private collections, sometimes when receiving official gifts. It creates this, this huge problem in terms of understanding what's owned by the country and what's owned by them. We've learnt how kings and queens of the past have profited from their links to transatlantic slavery. So this document is from the Royal African Company stock books. And what it does is it captures the transfer of 1,000 pounds of shares in the Royal African Slave Trading Company. Now, as the coronation gets ever closer, we're chasing the final leads and approaching the conclusion of our reporting. But not before a run-in with the police. We can get arrested. Hello. Hi. Hi. Yeah. What are you up to? What do you do for a living? Journalist. 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 Do you have your press passes or anything like that? Not on me. No identification? I can show you mine. Yeah, if you've got, if you've got some ID, please. Yeah. From The Guardian, I'm Maeve McClendigan. Today in Focus, Cost of the Crown Part 4. Calculating the King's Wealth. This investigation is nearly at its end, but there's still one area we haven't yet cracked. The mansions and country estates that are owned privately by the King. We've all heard of Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle. 
but those are held by the crown, not the man himself. But with Balmoral and Sandringham on the other hand, it's now Charles's name on the ownership documents. Balmoral, a Scottish retreat acquired by Queen Victoria and still beloved by today's royal family. It was at Balmoral, in the Scottish Highlands, that the Queen passed away. Her Majesty's coffin will be departing Balmoral Castle this morning in just a short time in a hearse to be driven to Edinburgh. Now it's owned privately by King Charles. But what could it be worth? Our colleague Severin Carroll, the Guardian Scotland editor, went to see the place for himself. So I'm standing beside the River Dee, the famous salmon fishing river, which runs under the bridge to the gates of Balmoral Castle. It's been a busy day at the castle today. Families paying £35 for access to the castle's grounds and an exhibition of photographs of the royal family at play around Balmoral. With the exception of that exhibition, the ballroom, the castle is actually closed off to the public. But judging by the fact nearly all of Balmoral's Land Rover tours of the estate, which cost a group of six £350 for a two-hour drive, are sold out well into July. This looks like being a busy and successful summer for the estate. But visiting is one thing. Getting a sense of what a property like this is worth is something very different. Severin gets to work, mapping out exactly what is on the vast estate grounds and then talking to a valuation expert to get an estimate of what value it might have. 500 miles away in Norfolk is another huge property, Sandringham, where the royal family traditionally spend their Christmases. So much has changed for them, but some things stay the same. The royal Christmas Day routine a family service at Sandringham, but with one much-loved member missing. My colleague Rupert Neat and I start looking into what it might be worth and soon decide that, just like Severin did, the best thing to do is to go and visit. Right. Seven minutes away. Oh, Sandringham, that's the first sign I've seen. Yeah. Six miles to Sandringham. Um, wow, so a sort of stunning, stereotypical, giant country mansion is what I would saw that. And let's try and count the windows. Yeah. 50 windows, just from this side. Yeah. Um, Looks like four floors or three But we're not at Sandringham just for the house. You see, we've been digging into the land registry records and we found 57 land titles that are owned in the name of the king. His name personally there on the freehold titles. And when we dig further, we find that on each of those plots of land, there are houses, lots of houses. Hello. Hi, Hello. sorry to bother you. Um, we're reporters from The Guardian, and we're writing a story about the king ahead of the coronation. Okay. And we're looking for people that live in houses owned by the king, and we noticed your blue door. Yeah, yeah, all of the ones with these blue doors are Sandringham State ones. Yeah. Yeah. These houses, all of them with light blue doors, used to be homes to the many workers needed to run the huge estate. Many of them were sold off in the 80s. These days, lots of the ones that remain are rented out just like you would from a private landlord. 
So Rupert and I drive from village to village, talking to everyone we can, to try to find people whose landlord is the king. Um, So we're just arriving in another beautiful village with a historic church. And uh, we've heard there's a lot more blue doors here. So, oh, spotted two down there. It's the whole of this village, but then there's other villages as well? Yep. Yes, um, yes, you've got Bircham. They own some of Bircham, not all of Bircham. Um, you've got Anne we found that the king also owns at least 37 commercial plots too. An estate with a butcher's, a health centre and a solicitor's office. Elsewhere we find farms, village stores, a church, a primary school, a nursery, all with the king as a freehold owner. In Dursingham, one of the places we found with houses owned by the king, I sat down with Gwen Leary. She runs a B&B in the town. As a royalist, she's proud to have the king as her landlord. Yes, I'm Gwen and I've lived here for 23 years. The landlord is His Majesty the King. Almost said Queen. <laughs> well, there are about 300-plus um, estate properties. Some are estate workers, some are like me, just tenants, and others, I think, are holiday lets. So there's a mixture. So are you on a kind of long-term lease or one year or what? Yeah, what's the situation? Six-month six short-term tenancy. And how does that feel? Because that's quite insecure as a, to build a life. Well, I'm hoping that they appreciate all the uh, money I've spent on the property. I mean, I put in a, an ensuite shower, which um, was out of my pocket. I paid part of the bathroom, part of the kitchen. They contributed towards the kitchen fittings. Okay, so so in general, as a landlord and as a or as a tenant of the king, yeah, how would you sum it up? Excellent. Yes, I wouldn't uh, say anything bad about them. Gwen and the others tell us that the tenancy agreements contain certain rules, like a strict no cats policy. We didn't see a single cat during our time travelling around the villages. That rule might be because the pheasants and game birds around here are a big deal to the royals who enjoy a shoot. It makes sense they wouldn't want cats beating them to it. But not everyone we speak to is so happy with their landlord. In a village called Schoenborn, we meet Mick, a tall man with a twinkle in his eye. He's been in his house for 50 years, and he and his wife live there rent-free because she works on one of the local farms, on land that's rented from the king. So the queen is lovely, lovely, lovely lady. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot mad. Uh, do you see much of the new king? No, yeah, no, we don't see much of, so much of him. Never did. Mm. You know, we, I used to do work with him, had a Versailles regiment down for... He's been here a long time and loves living in the village, but things aren't all easy. He's been asking for renovations to his house for years. So we asked him if he thought that the king was a good landlord. Oh, yes, no, not very good. Oh, no? No, 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 we haven't got any, any loft insulation. We've still got metal windows. We haven't got a firewall. And lots of things. Other tenants told us that they think that because Charles likes the houses to look traditional, they have to keep their single glazed windows. So no loft insulation must be quite cold. No, it's a bit chilly sometimes, yes. Yeah, yeah. just get used to it. Just turn the heat up, it's not... Huh, yeah. It's expensive yeah. now, though. Sorry? Yes. Well, yeah, well, yeah, we just had electric people come in today. And you've got to have single glazed windows. Uh... Yeah, no double glazed, nothing like that. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. In the wintertime, our, our flannel used to freeze on the top of the sink. That's how cold it was. Wow. Mm. Well, that's chilly. Yeah. In the, in the bad winters. When we asked the palace about this, they said there's actually a move to replace windows with double glazing. 
They also said they wouldn't comment on individual tenants or their issues. We keep going, from village to village, spotting more and more blue doors. Then we decide to visit Anma. It's a tiny village, just one street of houses, all of them owned by the king. The last house was bought up by the Windsors in 2006. We wander down the main road as the chirping of birdsong is interrupted by the roar of RAF jets flying overhead. We chat to a few people, but no one wants to talk on mic. You can't change it. What happens if you wanted a red door? <laughs> you can't. <laughs> you know, if you rent somewhere, it? you've got to do what the yeah. landlord says. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, it's, it's not just because of sound ringing, it's wherever you go. Yeah, of course. You know, it's, it's no different because the sound ringing to the yeah, yeah. council. It's, yeah. It is no different. We never comment on the royal family, one man tells us. So we decide to move on, but as we drive off, we spot a sign for the village church off on the side road. We're keen to see if there's anyone there we can talk to, so we go to take a look. Church open. Blue door. We head into the church to look around, but there's no one there. Oh, wow. And then, two people in security uniforms appear out of the bushes at the very end of the churchyard. We walk over to talk to them. Our microphone and recorder is out with the red recording light flashing, though it's unclear if they knew we were recording or not. Oh, hi. But the churchyard is public, is it? Sorry? The churchyard is public. It turns out the church backs on to land around Anmer Hall, the Prince of Wales's house. And these security guards tell us that the Serious Organised Crime and Police Act applies to this area and, quote, if you're not visiting the church, it's a criminal offence to be on the land. So you've got an exemption while you're visiting the church, but if you're not, then you commit a criminal offence if you were to stay and not have anything to do with the church. End quote. So we explain that we were visiting the church and we're leaving anyway. A little confused, we make our way back to the car and on the way, two police officers appear coming up the path towards us. In the public... Um, we can get arrested. Hi. Hi. Yeah, see what you're up to. We just came to visit the church, have a look inside At and wander around the back of the church. Yeah, we well, were, they well. came out, so we went to talk to them. Yeah. I was wondering yeah. what you know where you are. We d actually, we didn't. We didn't know we... that this was the land. Yeah, we, well, we still don't really understand who owns this patch of land. Okay, are you local? No. no, no. Where are you from? This police officer, with his stab vest and his taser on his hip, tells us, quote, The church is open to the public, but if you're not here for a specific reason, then you're trespassing. We do have members of the public, locals that come here, and that's fine. But if you come here and are reporting without permission from the estate, that's not. They take our details. I get photographed and my name is called through the radio to check who I am. Then we get back into the car. I've got yeah, if you've got, if you've got, got some ID, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is absolutely mad. I'm so confused. I, I... Later, we look it up, and we find that the church, which is not owned by the king, is open to the public and describes itself online as, quote, a super-friendly church. 
yet again more confusion about what is public, what is private, and what, like this churchyard that we are allowed in but we aren't allowed in, doesn't strictly belong to the royal family but has their shadow cast all over it. Like everything else in this journey, we found ourselves in this grey space of the in-between. Back in the office, we trawl through more land registry details, cross-referencing them with the addresses we found on our travels. Then we use satellite imagery and maps to plot out the areas of farmland, all to build this really detailed picture of what is actually on these two estates. We take our findings to various land valuation experts, and they come back with estimates. This is the last piece in the puzzle, and we're finally ready to start assembling them all together. Coming up, the cost of the crown. We unveil the results of our final calculations. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV, read a book, meet up with a friend, maybe a little nap. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives – Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus. We're really getting somewhere now. We've all compiled these huge inventories of what the royal family owns privately. We've looked at the private estates. Henry's been tasked with valuing the royal stamp collection and their fleet of cars. I've been looking at their art. We've even commissioned our horse racing correspondent to value all the king's horses. Now we're talking to valuation experts to get informed estimates of what each of those things might be worth. David Pegg, who's been looking at jewels, has identified more than 90 pieces in the Queen's personal collection. 
jewels he thinks are privately owned and may have been passed on to Charles. These include some of the most valuable gems in the world. Diamonds, rubies, emeralds, aquamarines. Some of these have been valued before, but never as a whole collection. So he catches up with gemologist and jewellery merchant Sarah Abbe for her thoughts. It came to me last night, actually, when I was thinking about this. That's, that's the specialness of this uh, Queen Elizabeth. I mean, she's the, and uh, valuing this for me is the most difficult factor. You cannot compare the woman to anybody else. So she, if, if they come to, to the market, I, I, there will be a million people who want a piece of this. If any of these items were ever put up for sale, the royal provenance would likely play a huge role in inflating that price. Yeah, provenance is always important. Provenance is a um, history of the chain of ownership, which always add a value to the buyer to know where it came from. And when it is owned and worn by an important person, it adds extra value. We saw this phenomenon. You might call it the royal premium. When the private collection of Princess Margaret was sold off after her death in 2002. Here's the head of Christie's talking to AP at the time about the auction of her estate. The star to me is the most fantastic Fabergé clock and the Fabergé clock market is really incredibly hot at the moment. Um, I would have thought we're thinking six to eight hundred thousand pounds but given in the interest in the sale it could well be quite a bit more. In the end, that Fabergé clock went for 1.2 million. And on average, each item went for 18 times the top-end estimate. One pendant went for 120 times the top-end estimate. A clear sign of the huge premium that can be added onto the price just by this royal connection. To catalogue all the King's holdings, we've worked with 12 valuation experts. This hasn't been easy. Each different type of asset threw up a different set of complexities. The easier bit came at the end, adding them all up for an estimate of King Charles's net worth. I caught up with everyone on a Zoom call. So we've all been working for months. Um, it would be great to find out what figures everyone's got to. So the art collection I found is worth at least £24 million, but could be worth a lot more because we've only got a fraction of it. David, how about Jules? Um, we've got a snapshot of about 54 pieces of jewellery. We think they're worth £533 million. Their private stamp collection is worth £100 million. The standing estate and the 300 houses that they own roundabout could be worth £250 million. Which is a lot more than we've ever, that has ever been valued before, right? Oh, yeah, loads, like, loads more. It's an extraordinary figure, particularly with all of those private homes, isn't it? It's quite remarkable. What about Balmoral, the other private home? So Balmoral and the Grousemoor that the King owns at Delna Dam for worth roughly, we think, £78 million, but that price doesn't include the royal premium. So hypothetically, it could be worth quite a bit more than that. And then there's all this duchy estate, right, Rob? What, what's, what do we think that's worth? Well, the duchy, uh, its own accounts, they declare assets of £653 million. So, David, when you top all that up in your spreadsheet and do the maths, what, what are we coming out at? £1.815 billion.
works a lot. We should think, where does that rank them in the country's richest people? Mm. But that's incredible. I mean, just a few weeks ago, there was the Sunday Times estimate, which was, what, 600 million? So we're way over double that. It's three times that. £1.8 billion. It's an enormous sum and three times larger than a recent calculation of the king's wealth. Well, let's talk about the coronation, because as the season nears here in the UK, King Charles's personal wealth has come under public scrutiny. It also throws into sharp relief the king's most valuable financial asset, total immunity from inheritance tax. That has allowed Charles to receive his mother's wealth free of any contribution to the public purse. In a statement, a spokesperson for the king said, quote, While we do not comment on private finances, your figures are a highly creative mix of speculation, assumption and inaccuracy. End quote. The palace declined to offer alternative figures. It has a policy of refusing to comment on the personal finances of royals, insisting they should remain private as they do for any other individual. Reaction to the findings was swift. A new poll shows that 51% of people think the coronation should not be publicly funded, just 32% think it should. Given a report today that the King has a reported personal fortune of £1.8 and given the monarch already benefits from not paying inheritance tax, it's easy to see why so many people are not happy with this. So could we have a debate about the levels of public money being spent on the coronation, especially given the incredibly difficult economic situation that so many people are in? So now, after months of work, a huge team effort, we're closer than ever before to knowing what the king and his family are privately worth. What if you stripped away all the things related to the crown they'd be left with? And it's a lot of money. But more than that, we've uncovered just how deep the secrecy is around their holdings. About the ambiguity between public and private. About how much of their private wealth derives in one way or another from their public position. And we know the figure we have can't be seen as definitive. Nothing can. Because this is all so cloudy. So murky. We went back to Anna Whitelock, who we spoke to at the start of this investigation, for her thoughts on our findings. Yeah, I mean, it's been fantastic how much you've been able to uncover. And of course, you know, your starting point was the starting point that frustrates both historians and journalists, which is so much is inaccessible. So the fact that you've been able to uncover new bits of information, but then drawn them together in such a way that makes sense to people. So obviously the estimated wealth of the king, extraordinary. And then the idea of how that comes to be, you know, made up of income, things like racehorses and cars, it really starts to make it very, you know, very vivid that, you know, this is a very rich man. And I think the prospect of a man who himself is worth, you know, 1.8 billion, essentially asking his subjects, if uh, if we can be described as that, uh, to pay for his coronation is quite shocking. And then, of course, as you've drawn out the fact that when pressed about why information about finances of the king are, are not disclosed, 
the response is always, well, it's, you know, he's a private individual, but then of course he doesn't pay inheritance tax like a private individual. So I think you've drawn out those, I, I guess at best you can say contradictions and at worst, you know, outrages uh, that are right in front of our eyes. And this whole sense of the monarchy being hidden in plain sight in many ways. To Anna, all that matters, because the royals are only where they are, because we, the people, in some way, allow them to be. The fact is we are supposedly, and I assume, giving our informed consent, but I think as the work that you've done has shown, we are not particularly informed about our head of state. And and that, in a way, really does expose the issue. And that's not about whether you're a sort of diehard supporter of monarchy or not. None of, us are, none of us are informed enough, and that can't be right. And Anna wonders why more questions aren't being asked about how the royals are using this money that they have. If, as well as all the photo shoots at food banks and community centres, they might use some of their own wealth to improve the lives of others. They could, I think, genuinely spend their money in such a way that would leave people in no doubt that they were looking to change and, and modernise and and represent something different. So it kind of just leaves you really perplexed when we know that these royals have so much money that they clearly don't know what to do with, but instead are kind of, you know, really just playing in a kind of world of gestures when they could make such a difference. Questions like this are possible now because we have a much better sense of the king's private wealth. And perhaps all of that will open up a debate. I really hope that at the very least now, people see that there is literally more than meets the eye um, and there are questions to be asked and, uh, and knowledge to be had about exactly what the monarchy is about and its power, wealth and, and influence. So now we know that the Windsor family have all this private wealth and yet are given many millions each year from the government. No one will be surprised to hear that King Charles is a wealthy man, but his net worth of 1.8 billion does raise some important questions, including about whether the royal family really needs the 120 million pounds a year it receives from public money and hereditary estates. Some might say that that's still money well spent. The royals also bring in a lot of money to the UK. According to the business consultancy Brand Finance, the royals add £1.8 billion to the UK economy every year. Around £550 million of that comes from tourism. Even Piers Morgan was wheeling out the tourism argument earlier this week. Why can't the royal the families taxpayer gets the money and back. pay themselves yeah, back the with the money that we're told? Get some money back from tourism. That's the point. Yeah. So the, the, the net cost of the royal family is a positive. They don't cost us anything. So that argument never washes with me because they actually bring more than they cost. But actually, when we look into it, we find there's not really any evidence to support the claim that the royal family is this huge boon to the economy as a tourist attraction. In Visit Britain's 2021 survey, none of the top 10 British tourist attractions were linked to the royals. And Guardian journalist David Pegg isn't buying the they-pay-their-way-through-tourism argument either. I've always thought this this kind of reasoning is completely utterly insane. Um, you know, it, for a start, this 
normally gets presented without really any figures supporting it. And if you could do go looking for figures, they don't tend to back it up. I mean, the, the idea that you would m- run your kind of constitutional or governmental system on the basis of what's good for tourism just seems to me to be absolutely in crackers. I mean, that's not that's a terrible argument for having a monarchy. The idea that, you know, people come and buy some celebratory mug um, is like not really up there. But as we prepare for the coronation, could things be changing? Recently, we've been getting hints from King Charles that he appreciates the cost it takes to run the monarchy, that maybe he will change things up. In his first days as ruler, King Charles III is reportedly considering slimming down the British monarchy, paring down the monarchy team to a key seven members. Uh, What are the pros and cons to this kind of change? Historian Gareth Russell has been keeping an eye on the proposed changes to how things are run at the palace. Yes, I think there certainly have been rumblings long before he became king that he wanted a slimmed down monarchy. Now, obviously, that's a fairly flexible term. What someone's slimmed down monarchy will be is not necessarily somebody else's version or vision of it. I think in the long term, we're going to see the monarchy move in this country towards something very similar to the monarchy in Denmark. Now those rumblings about slimming down the number of working royals are going to be put to the test. But how to do that delicately remains a big question. And it certainly seems like it hasn't gone down well with Princess Anne, who in an interview this week said... Well, I think the slim down was, was said in a day when there were a few more people around to make that seem like a justifiable right. <laughs> comment. <laughs> The world um, changes a bit. It changes a bit. I mean, it doesn't sound like a good idea from where I'm standing. Then there are hints about how the money will be received. Like Charles signalling there should be some kind of reduction in the amount he receives automatically from the sovereign grant. Now, King Charles has asked for a surge in profits from six offshore wind farms on the Crown estate worth £1 billion to be used for the wider public good rather than the royal family. Some might argue that Charles turning down the profits that could have come from the wind farms was actually a canny bit of public relations. Maybe him making the move before the Treasury was forced to do so to him, rather than any kind of altruism. But it certainly doesn't speak to a king trying to wring every penny out of the country for his own gain. I have to say, given he's only been king for nine months, it is he has done quite a lot already, especially in an institution that is not noted for moving fast on issues like this. The coronation is now just a few days away. Reports suggest it could cost as much as £100 million of public taxpayer money. Now, usually at the end of months of investigative digging, there's a sense of finality, of having got to the bottom of something. And yet the question of the royal's finances is so murky, clear answers are so elusive, that as the bunting is unfurled and the street parties planned, it doesn't really feel like we've got to the whole truth. I'm back with David Pegg, where this all began. Yeah, it's intensely frustrating. So we've, how long have we spent on this now? When did we, when did we first start talking about this? Like, well, it, it was after she died, so it would have been fairly sure after, so September. So it kind of, you know, over half a year, right? Where we've had like six, seven reporters, not quite full time, but getting close, trying to get to this answer of, um, you know, of 
how wealthy the king is and how much of that money is taken from the public purse. And we now have a much, you know, in fairness to ourselves, we now have a much better estimate than we've ever really previously had. And yet, fundamentally, there's only one person who can answer this question, and that's the king. And if he refuses to do that, then all you've got um, are the best informed estimates that you can get, which is what we've set out to do. The, the one thing that I always come, come back to on this is that when we've said to them, you know, how much is this worth? Um, you know, who owns it? And they refuse to answer. Maybe that's just because they, 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 they think the questions are impudent. They're not going to pay a bill, right? But maybe there's another reason for it, which is that they don't know what they own. They don't know what it's worth. They've never had to answer these questions before. And so they don't want to risk saying something wrong. You know, it might be that it's so unknowable that even he doesn't know how much he's worth. They've just treated it as this, it exists in this weird kind of hinterland between their private possessions and, you know, priceless state heritage that can never be disposed of. And it sort of inhabits the qualities of both at the same time, despite, it's like some weird quantum thing where it's in a superposition between public and private. It's both public heritage and also their private possession at the same time. And as soon as they give an answer, it can only ever be one of them. And that might be part of the reason why, you know, A, they've never looked and B, even if they did know, they didn't particularly want to say. And you can understand that because right now they've got the best of both worlds. But I don't think that's a really sustainable basis on which a kind of 21st century monarchy can go forward. Which leaves us wondering what comes next as they travel to the coronation in cars that may or may not be theirs, to be adorned with crowns containing private and public jewels, to return back to their palaces filled with private and public art. With a new monarch on the throne, it might be time to step back, to look again at this deliberate ambiguity that enables the royal family to enjoy the trappings of privilege with no questions asked. If you're interested in finding out more about how we came to our 1.8 billion figure, you can read detailed methodologies underpinning each of these estimates on our website, theguardian.com. Next time. In our final episode of the Cost of the Crown series, The Guardian's columnist Jonathan Friedland on what we can expect from the coronation. I think the presumption that whatever had always applied was fine is no longer quite there. In an era where people don't think the monarchy is a product from, from the heavens, that the curtain has been pulled back. This isn't sort of out of a fairy tale. This is very human arrangements that have somehow allowed this one family to amass enormous wealth. I think it could make things tougher if questions start being asked about the institution itself. That's it for today. You can read all of our Costa de Crown reporting at theguardian.com. This series is produced by Lucy Hoff. It's reported and presented by me, Maeve McClendon. Sound design by Rudy Zigadlo. The executive producer is Phil Maynard. This is The Guardian. Selling a little or a lot? <laughs> 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.